Well, in the Christian section of many major bookstores, you usually have a, a selection for, for Bibles and commentaries and other reference materials. That's normally the small section in, in that uh, portion of the bookstore. You have a much larger section of Christian fiction novels for some reason. And you also have an entire section on Christian living. In a Christian bookstore, you'll have multiple rows of books dealing with the subject of Christian living. Books written to believers about how life is to be lived in between the first and second coming of Jesus. And the reason for this is because Scripture spends a lot of time on this subject. Jesus spends a lot of time on this topic toward the close of his earthly ministry. On the eve of his death, we have him instructing his disciples on how they are to live in his absence. In, in John's gospel, you have a large section of John's gospel just dealing with Jesus' prayer for his disciples and his instruction to them in the, the upper room. On the eve of his death, you also have him demonstrating how they are to serve one another in his absence and how they are to serve the Lord first and foremost. You have Jesus washing his disciples' feet, calling for them to follow his example and do as he has done. And while certain denominations have taken that to be an ordinance that we're literally to wash the disciples' feet, I, I believe he's giving an example here of, of how they are to serve one another because he's just talked about greatness through service. So you've got to consider the context there. He calls for them to, to minister in humility and love and serve one another and to follow his example, to do as he has done, to love as he has loved them and serve as he has served them. Jesus also prayed for his disciples on this night. You're going to read the high priestly prayer this week in your scripture reading in John 17. He prays for them to remain faithful, to be fruitful, to grow in godliness, and to be unified in ministry. Lots of instruction Jesus is giving his disciples. If you have your Bibles, turn to Luke 22. Luke 22, continuing our study through the Gospel of Luke. This is Sermon 93 from Luke. All right, you're welcome. All right, it's been good though, hadn't it? If you're going to be if you're going to be camped out somewhere no no better place to be. We are looking at the section of scripture this morning where they're in the upper room verses 28 through 38. Jesus is with his disciples in the upper room. He has just thrown a hand grenade on their on their dinner table by introducing a new ordinance, the Lord's Supper. This was very shocking to his disciples. The last divinely ordained Passover meal, the first divinely ordained Lord's Supper meal, a very important night in church history. And, and so, so that's the first shock. And so this point forward, Jesus calls for them when they take the bread 
And when they drink from the cup to remember the life that he lived and the death he died to save them. They're called to take that communion meal as a community of believers expressing their trust in Christ alone for salvation as a proclamation of his gospel, as a celebration in anticipation of Jesus' return. After that, he gives them more shocking news as if the transformation of the, the Passover meal were not enough for one night, right? He also tells them that one of the twelve will betray him. That was also shocking. And then a discussion breaks out on what qualities they think that God thinks, uh, what, what qualities God desires out of his leaders, and that comes as a result of them talking about who's going to be the greatest in God's kingdom. They had very worldly ideas about about what made one great in God's kingdom. And Jesus again shocks them by calling for them to follow his example and serve with humility. So Jesus just continues on with this this shocking information, this shocking instruction, one after another. No more Passover, instead communion. One of you will betray me, and the least among you, the last of all, the servant of all, will be the greatest. And he doesn't stop there. In this text, he gives Peter some shocking news as well. And while that is often the main focus of many who have preached this text of Scripture, we are going to talk about Jesus talking about Peter's betrayal. But I believe the main emphasis here is on how Jesus equips his disciples to serve him faithfully in his absence. While he's been preparing to leave them, he's been preparing them for his absence, they have failed to understand it. They have failed to accept it. Things are about to drastically change for his disciples. They are going to witness his arrest and his trial and his conviction and his death. They're going to to witness one of their own betray Jesus with a kiss. While, While Jesus will be raised and he will return to instruct them further for a season, he is going to leave them. They are going to be without Jesus physically, and while they will want to see him, Luke's already talked about that, that Jesus told them, you're going to want to want to be with me, he is going to be away from them for a time. While he'll be spiritually present with them, he tells them, I will not leave you as orphans, I will come to you. He will be there spiritually through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Christ will be absent from them physically, and they're going to be forced to minister without him in a world set against him and set against them. Jesus knows this. He knows things are about to get difficult for them. He knows that they will need the grace of God, divine instruction to continue on, and of course the empowering of the Holy Spirit as well. That is the reason for Jesus's instruction here. So we're going to examine Jesus's teaching here and we're also going to personally apply it church because this is where we live, believe it or not. Think of the similarities between us 
and the disciples here. We're Jesus' disciples, right? So were they. We live in between the first coming and second coming of Jesus Christ. So did they. We live in a world that is set against God. So did they. We are weak and quick to sin and in desperate need of God's grace. So were they. Very similar. Jesus' words here apply to us. Let's look at it. Luke 22, 28 through 38. I want you to notice three things Jesus' disciples needed from him to live faithfully for him until he returns. Number one, they needed the promise of glory. They need the promise of glory. Look at verses 28 through 30. You are those who have stayed with me in my trials. And I assign to you as my Father assigned to me a kingdom, that you may eat and drink in my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel. Now, while we looked at this a bit the last time we were in Luke, let's look at it again. To give his disciples strength in the present, Jesus gives them a glimpse of the future. Do you see that? Future reward makes present trials more bearable. Now, parents, children as well, you guys know this, right? How many of you all, to, to help your kids get through something that's challenging, you promise a reward at the end? We've all done this, right? Little kiddos have to go get a shot. If you're brave, you get your shot, you do well, I'll take you to go get a prize, right? That helps them. Muster up the courage to get through it. Jesus does this here. First, he encourages them with how far they have come. He says in verse 28, you are those who have stayed with me in my trials. They had sacrificed. Peter reminded Jesus of this as if Jesus needed reminding. They had left their homes to follow Jesus. When teachings got tough, many left they stayed, John chapter 6, as Jesus grew more unpopular with the religious leaders and the disciples were guilty by association, they remained faithful to Jesus. Very unpopular at this time. They stayed by his side. They had sacrificed and they would sacrifice even more. They would eventually saturate Jerusalem with the message of Jesus. Just read Luke's sequel in the book of Acts. God would use them to advance His kingdom throughout Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. They paid the price for that. They lost their lives for that. They sacrificed and they would sacrifice in their service to God. Now at first, we're going to learn shortly that when the shepherd is struck, the Lord Jesus is struck down, the sheep will scatter. That's a fulfillment of Scripture. After Jesus' arrest, the disciples will take off. They'll go into hiding. Peter will deny knowing Jesus. More on that in just a moment. But eventually, they will lay, lay their lives down for Christ. How are they going to be able to do that? Stand strong in the midst of opposition. Lay their own lives down. Well, one, they will witness the work that Jesus will accomplish for them in saving them through his death and resurrection, and they will receive the gift 
of the Holy Spirit who will empower them. He will give them power from on high to do this great work of ministry. But another motivation that we find here for them to remain steadfast, to persevere, no matter how difficult life gets, is this promise that Jesus gives them here. He promises reward for their faithfulness and even greater blessings by His grace. He says, verse 29, And I assign to you as my Father assigned to me a kingdom, that you may eat and drink in my table in my kingdom, and sit on thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. Now remember, up to this point, they've not done anything, right? I mean, yeah, they've left their homes, but they have yet to truly sacrifice. They have yet to to go out and do this incredible work of ministry. But Jesus, he promises them here their success. He does that at the beginning of Acts 8, uh, Acts 1, in Acts 1, 8. He tells them, he doesn't say, you might be my witnesses. I hope you'll be my witnesses. He says, you will be my witnesses. You'll be empowered on high by the Holy Spirit and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And he tells them here that when they go and do this work of ministry, after that, they are promised glory. He promises them glory here before they even take a step in that direction. Unlike parents who tell their children, if you do this, then I will do this. Jesus basically says here, when you do this, you will do this. You will serve me in this way, and I will reward you in glory. You will endure. You will remain faithful. You will grow in godliness. You will be fruitful. And when I take you home, you will have a place at my table and a throne by which to judge my people. That's some great motivation right there, isn't it? It really is. Before Jesus' words here, remember... They were motivated by earthly admiration, by the praise of men. They wanted to be considered great. They wanted the great greetings in the marketplace like the religious leaders because they wanted to be honored. They pridefully desired the praise of men. I read this last night with the girls in John 12 is where we are. But, but they wanted what the Pharisees wanted. In John 12, 43, we're told the Pharisees love the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. That's what they wanted at first. Jesus tells them that's not to be their motivation. That's not to be your motivation, believers. Not earthly praise, but heavenly glory. Folks, the promise of future glory should be what moves us, what motivates us to be faithful and to persevere in this broken and fallen world in which we live. The praise from men is cheap. It comes and goes. It's fleeting. It's oftentimes empty. Now, there is encouragement to come from our brothers and sisters in Christ. Amen? We should give it. 
And it does, it is something God gives us by his grace that builds us up. But there's also a lot of empty praise given as well that will not hold you, that will not sustain you, that will not strengthen you. It will not be what you need to endure dark and difficult trials that are inevitable for followers of Christ in this dark and dead world in which we live. It's the hope of glory that that provides us with the strength we need to stand in the present. It's the promise of eternity spent with God and His people in perfect relationship with Him in them that gives us the power to endure. It's a future existence of absolute Joy with the complete absence of sorrow and pain and death that provides us with the motivation that we need to endure any hardship in this life. Believer, you're promised that. I'm promised that. That should be your motivation today. Now, we have a cross to bear before a crown. We do. Jesus says that here. But he also says, as sure as the cross will come, there is a crown to follow. Jesus exampled that for us. Read Philippians 2, 5 through 11. You have the humiliation, you have the crucifixion, but then you have the resurrection and ascension and exaltation of the Lord Jesus. May that be what motivate you to live for Christ. Next point. Second thing Jesus' disciples needed to live faithfully for Him until He returns is His prayers. They need the prayers of their Savior. Look at verses 31 through 34. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Peter said to him, Lord, I am ready to go with you both to prison and to death. Careful, Peter. Jesus said, I tell you, Peter, the rooster will not crow this day until you deny me three times that you know me. Jesus drops another hand grenade on this dinner table. He ends an ancient ordinance and initiates a new one, tells his disciples one of them will betray him, tells them that true greatness is in humility and service, an idea that no Jewish person in the first century believed. And now he tells Peter that he will deny knowing him, not once, not twice, but three times. Imagine the response of the disciples to this news. They're just discussing who the greatest is. Jesus tells them, one of you is going to betray me, and Peter, you're going to deny me. He lets him know there is a spiritual battle taking place that the great enemy, Satan, is requesting to go at them. You realize we're in a battle today, believers? Well, we are. Problem is, many of us, even though all of us are on the front lines as believers, many are living as if it's peacetime in the midst of battle. Can you imagine soldiers doing that? 
living as if it's peacetime in the midst of battle. The disciples are doing that here. They have, they have no idea what's going on in the spiritual realm. Jesus lets them know. But he also lets them know, this should comfort you, that our great enemy Satan cannot do anything without the Heavenly Father's permission. He can't do it. But he desires to have Peter and the other ten disciples. Something that's lost in translation here that you need to know is this. When Jesus says, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. The you is plural there, okay? In in southern Greek, it'd be y'all, all right? Jesus is referring to all the disciples here, okay? What he is, is essentially saying here is, Peter, Satan requested that he have you and the twelve, all of you, He wants to sift all of you like wheat. He wants to discard you like a winnower would the outer husk of wheat. In other words, Satan wants to have you all, Peter. He wants to destroy you. But he lets Peter know here that will not happen. While God will allow for Satan to go at Peter and will allow Peter to fall, his fall, unlike Judas, will not be absolute. He says it here. Look at verse 32. But I have prayed for you. Now the you here is singular. It changes. The language is help. I have prayed for you, Peter, that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Jesus is speaking to Peter about the fall that's coming. He says toward the end of verse 32, when you have turned again, that is turned back to the Lord, meaning there will be a turning away from him, right? Again, God is letting Peter know that he is going to fall. Why? Well, we learned here why God allows Peter to fall. We learned that in John's Gospel. We get a better understanding of that in John's Gospel. In John's great chapter where he he brings closure to Peter's story in, in John 21, he restores Peter on the shore of the Sea of Tiberias. You learn why God allowed this for Peter. You see, throughout Jesus' earthly ministry, Peter has had the attitude of, I'm your most faithful. I'm your most devoted disciple. He is constantly setting himself above the rest. He's constantly speaking out and, and setting himself above the pack. He's saying and doing things that's showing, hey, I'm your most devoted. Even if they all, all, all the rest of them fall away, not me, Jesus, I'm with you. He, he's constantly speaking out, setting himself above everyone else. He's saying and doing things that, that, that says, I'm your most devoted disciple. Peter truly believe that he trusted in his his own trust in Jesus right Peter says when there's news of a potential fall he says Lord I'm going I'm ready to go with you both to prison and to death in Matthew 26 Peter is recorded as saying though they all fall away because of you I will never fall away He had misplaced confidence in his own abilities. He is confident in his present relationship with the Lord as one of his his most faithful disciples. He has confidence in his past victories. Peter truly believed in his own strength that he had staying power. 
That's what he believed. Here's the reality. Verse 34. Jesus says, I tell you, Peter, the rooster will not crow this day until you deny three times that you know me. Shocking for Peter and for the rest. Peter is saying, I'm with you forever. Jesus says, you'll deny me before the rooster crows. Peter says, I will go to war for you. Jesus says, no, you'll go into hiding for you. Peter says, I will stand before the Jewish religious leaders and the Roman rulers for you. Jesus says, you will cower when you're approached by a servant girl. Peter says, I will die for you. Jesus says, no, you'll deny me. Not once, not twice, but three times. Peter needed that. John 21, be sure and read it this week. It's in your scripture reading. Jesus recreates the scene of Peter's denial with the charcoal fire and three questions. Very, very interesting when you see this. At the denial, you have them around a charcoal fire and Peter gets asked three questions. Do you know him? Were you with him? Do you know him? Peter says three times, no, no, no. John 21. They're eating broiled fish for breakfast on the shore of the Sea of Tiberias around a charcoal fire. And Jesus asked him three times, Do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? And Peter knows what Jesus is doing there because the third time that Jesus asked him this, we're told that Peter was grieved by the question. He's taking him back to those denials. Why? To break Peter so that he'd be better equipped to serve him. Brokenness is a prerequisite for service and ministry. Write that down. Brokenness is a prerequisite for service and ministry. God, by his grace, allows for Peter to fall in order to humble him so he is more fit to serve him. That's the way he works. Boy, he did it on me. I was prideful early on, and the Lord allowed me to go through a difficult trial that brought me to my knees to see my need of him, and I'm thankful for it every day. After Peter is grieved by the denials, Jesus commissions him to be his apostle. So God has good reason for allowing what he does. It's, it's Judas's betrayal that leads to Christ's arrest and crucifixion on Passover week. And it's Peter's denials that lead to his brokenness, which leads him to be a restored, humble servant of the Lord Jesus Christ. So while Peter experiences a colossal fall, he is not a complete failure. He does not fail in his faith. Why? Well, one reason, like we've already explained already, because God is a God of grace. Amen? Aren't you thankful for the grace of God? We all need it. He's got great plans for Peter to use him, but he's got to strengthen him. 
so that he can be used to strengthen the other disciples in the right way when they all fall away, which they do, from their calling as disciples after Jesus' arrest and death. Jesus tells Peter, and when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. So Peter does not fail in his faith completely because God is a God of mercy and grace and because he has chosen him, he has chosen to to use him to lead and strengthen the other disciples. Another reason Peter does not fail in his faith is because Jesus is praying for him. He says, I've prayed for you. That's good news, isn't it, believers? You know, Jesus prays for us. He absolutely does. You know why that's good news? Because Jesus always gets what he prays for. You know why? Because his desires match his father's. Now, some of you will say, well, didn't he pray that the cup of God's wrath pass from him at Calvary? Yes, but you know what he coupled that with? Not my will, but yours be done. His greatest desire was the will of God because that's what's best. And it was God's will that he go to Calvary and accomplish our salvation through his death and resurrection in accordance with the will of his Father. Believers, Jesus is praying for you. He is before the Father right now interceding for us. How comforting is that? John says in 1 John 2, 1, We have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He is our advocate, our paraclete, our helper. Does that sound familiar? That's who the Spirit is as well. We're helped, greatly helped by God, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. Romans 8, 34. Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us in Hebrews 7.25. Christ is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. Christ is our perfect high priest who ever lives to make intercession for us, who stands before God on our behalf, He is the reason we're right with God right now because he is is ever living to stand before him for us. He prays for us. It is his work as our priest, his prayers for our faith and the Spirit's work in our hearts that helps us stand in the midst of hardship and persevere when life gets tough. It's his prayers for us that get us back up when we fall. We learned this lesson from Peter. Peter's fall was a colossal one. It's the equivalent of a faithful disciple denying the faith when faced with persecution. His fall was great, but by God's grace, it was not absolute. Jesus lets him know before his fall, he has great plans for him to use him to lead his disciples to strengthen them again. He not only forgives Peter, but he commissions him and he uses him in a mighty way and he lets him know even before that that he's prayed for him. May that encourage you, believers. Maybe you're here this morning, you've fallen. 
in a major way and you feel as if you're beyond using. Maybe you have a marriage that's fallen apart. You have children who are estranged from you. Maybe you're struggling with whatever sin you've been struggling with for so long and, and you have just decided that you are no longer useful for God's kingdom purposes. Listen, Satan would love for you to continue in that way of thinking. He would love it. He would love to have you. He would love to sift you like wheat. He would love to discredit you, disqualify you, discard you, and destroy you. That's what he would love to do. We learn from Peter here that the Lord still has love for and plans to use those who have fallen into sin. Amen? If you would forsake your sin and fall before him, believer, he will not crush you nor reject you, but he will receive you, he will renew you, he will reuse you. If you have problems with that, you're going to have a problem with this story with Peter because that's what we learned from Peter's story. Last point. In addition to them needing the promise of glory and the prayers of the Lord, the third thing Jesus' disciples needed to live faithfully for him until he returns is they needed to be equipped by him for ministry. They needed his equipping. They need preparation for ministry. That's what Jesus will do here and certainly what he will do during his post-resurrection ministry in Matthew 28 and Luke 24 and John 20 and 21 and in Acts chapter 1. But it begins here before his death. He begins to prepare them. Look at uh, verses 35 through 38. And he said to them, When I sent you out with no money bag or knapsack or sandals, did you lack anything? They said, Nothing. He said to them, But now let the one who has a money bag take it, and likewise a knapsack, and let the one who has no sword sell his cloak and buy one. For I tell you that this scripture must be fulfilled in me. And he was numbered with the transgressors, for what is written about me has its fulfillment. And they said, Look, Lord, here are two swords. And he said to them, It is enough. So we've said already in the, in the days leading up to Jesus entering into Jerusalem during Holy Week. He's been preparing his disciples for life with, without him. And he tells them it's going to be difficult when he's gone. But he, he lets them know how they are to prepare for the ministry that he has called them to. When he sent them out the first time, remember, he told them to take nothing with them, right, as they went. And, and ministered and asked for, for, for nothing from those they ministered to, those they encountered. He said, take nothing for your journey, no staff, no, nor bag, nor bread, nor money. These, these items, they, they represent physical nourishment, monetary provisions, and personal protection. He says, leave your staff, don't bring your beggar's bag, don't even bring money. Why? Well, he said it's to demonstrate that Christ is all they need. That was their message, and that's what was demonstrated. And Christ said, you, did you lack anything? They said, nothing. We didn't lack anything. He provided 
for them. Here Jesus communicates to them that the ministry ahead without him physically with them is going to be a long and difficult one and they must prepare for it physically and rely upon the resources of one another while trusting in God in Christ's absence. He quotes Isaiah 53 telling them that the scriptures are about to be fulfilled that that speaks of Jesus's suffering and death. He is about to be numbered with the transgressors, crucified with criminals, buried in a borrowed tomb. Those who turned against him will then turn against them. That's how he prepares them for ministry, right? Welcome to the ministry. He assures them that the world will hate them because they hated him. The world will turn against them. It's going to be a long and difficult time for them in ministry, so they need to prepare for the needs that they have, the traveling they will do, and the enemies that they will encounter. He tells them in verse 36, Let the one who has a money bag take it, and likewise a knapsack, and let the one who has no sword sell his cloak and buy one. Speaking of history lessons, There's one from the Revolutionary War that says, Trust God and keep your powder dry. Meaning, do all you can to prepare for battle and place your faith in God. Jesus gives a similar word here for us believers. Here at Fellowship, we call upon you to give of your time and your money, your resources to help us here at this church do the work of ministry. But our trust is in God to provide it through you. We meet regularly as staff and as elders to plan for the work of ministry. We pray through, we study God's word, we discuss and plan our next steps in ministry. Is that because we don't trust God? No, it's because we do. We know that he has called us to lead here at this church and use the giftings that he has given us to make decisions that need to be made moving forward. We trust God and we keep our powder dry. We do all we can to prepare for the work of the ministry that the Lord has called us to and we place our faith and trust in him to bring the increase. We have had many setbacks over these past few years with COVID and other things. Yet the leadership still trusts God to use you to help support the ministries of this church. I encourage you to do that. Do you trust in God to work in and through you to do this work of ministry that God's called us to do here at 1817 East Rust Street? Fellowship Bible Church. Are you taking practical steps that need to be taken to help us minister? Are you giving to and are you serving in this church? Maybe you're here this morning and you're not trusting God to do this work in and through you because you're not trusting in Him alone personally for your salvation. If this is you, I plead with you to do that today. Turn from your life of sin. Place your faith and trust in Christ alone for your salvation. Listen, Christ came to live and die and rise again to give those who place their faith and trust in Him alone forgiveness of sin and peace with God. 
You can be forgiven today. You can be brought back into a right relationship with the living God today. You can join him, join us in this ministry if you would lay your life down before the King of glory. If Christ is not Lord of your life today, I invite you today, forsake your sin, bow before the King of kings today, and be saved. Let's pray together.